0: Navi Raju is a New York-based innovation and leadership scholar who advises senior executives worldwide on breakthrough growth strategies. A fellow at Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge, Navi has served as vice president at Forrester Research. In 2013, he won the prestigious Thinker's 50 Innovation Award given to a management thinker who is reshaping the way we think about and practice innovation. He delivered a talk at TED Global in 2014 on frugal innovation which has over 2 million views. He is a sought-after keynote speaker and widely quoted in international media. Born and raised in India, he holds dual French-American citizenship. He attended École Centrale Paris and Yale School of Management. He is a lifelong student of Ayurveda yoga and Vipassana meditation. Navi co-authored Frugal Innovation, How to Do Better with Less, as well as the global bestseller Jugad Innovation, with over 250,000 copies sold worldwide and from start to wise. He is working on his next book, Conscious Society, redefining who we are, reinventing how we consume, work, relate, and live. In this episode, Navi breaks down for us what frugal innovation really is and why this approach is so critical right now what it looks like to push beyond sustainability and instead strive for a regenerative economy and the unique opportunity for organizations and leaders to pursue a, what he calls, Y-shaped recovery out of the 2020, 2021 COVID crisis. And by the way, he doesn't mean why in the way that most people mean it. He means something much more profound, literally profound. Ladies and gentlemen, Navi Raju. Navi, it is so great to see you and thanks for being on the podcast with us. If you complete this sentence, if you really knew me, you would know that. I am a yoga addict. I don't travel
1: anywhere without my yoga mat. So even if I have to take a 5 a.m. flight,
0: I would wake up at 4 o'clock to do my yoga before jumping on the flight. Awesome. Awesome. And we're going to get into frugal innovation and deep and shallow strategy and regenerative economy and so many concepts you've introduced. But as this is a podcast for strategists and innovators, I like to ask this question to everyone. I've never gotten the same answer, which is, what is your definition of strategy?
1: Strategy for me is in a purest uh, way to define it, it's a plan to achieve a particular aim. So that's how it was practiced, at least in the business world. I think it's evolving now to be more about having a plan to achieve a purpose or a shared purpose. It's still the same idea, right? It's about achieving business objectives, but within a larger context. So I would say the strategy today has become a new process. It's a living process that involves the input of all stakeholders to create a plan
0: to serve a shared purpose. Why do you think that shift is happening When I was in business school, I went to Wharton. Donald Trump had just written his book on the art of the deal. It was all about, hey, Milton Friedman, if you maximize shareholder value, everything else will work out. Is the shift happening to the multi-stakeholder view that you're describing and why?
1: I mean, you're right. What really happened is the building on Milton Friedman, right? I mean, the famous thing he said was the business of business is business. So as long as the business of business is business, yes. Strategy is all about achieving business objectives. But then what happened in the last few years, first it was called CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. And then we are talking about it right now. We're doing COVID, where social responsibility, by the way, when I say COVID, I'm not just talking about the fact that we saw companies like Ford and General Motors shifting from making cars to making ventilators. But I'm talking about the fact that 2020, in addition to COVID, I think something else happened. The same way we had the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement with George Floyd's uh, assassination, took more precedence in the awareness of companies. So suddenly companies realized that things like social justice, climate change, rapidly responding to societal needs in times of crisis like COVID, et cetera, it's not CSR anymore. (laughs) It's becoming the core purpose of a company. So in other words, the business of business now is society.
0: Got it. So even if the business of business is business, the sustainability of that business requires a multi-stakeholder kind of benefit.
1: Yes, and I think there's a beautiful way that some CEOs have framed that is the fact that it's called the license to do business. So in other words, you can lose the license, same way, right? You can lose the license from a trade organization, but society will withdraw the license and say, look, basically consumers will vote with the wallet. Or maybe the city councillors will say, look, you know, and actually it's going to happen, right? I think the same way in the World War II finished, there's that famous thing that happened is people asked the companies, like in Germany, right? What did you do during the war? I think the same thing is gonna happen. I see it coming, not right now, but maybe end of the year and 2022, every company is gonna be scrutinized as to what exactly they did in 2020 and 21 to contribute to society. So I think it's best time to be a CSO, but it's gonna become more challenging because you have to basically factor in more stakeholders than ever before. And when you design a strategy like a d strategy, supply chain strategy, they are still valid, but I think the scope and the remit of what you do is
0: going to expand. So it's both
1: exciting, but it means probably you have to learn some new skills to
0: be good at this. It's so much easier to design a strategy when you are aiming for one customer and trying to get them in the door. But when that customer is connected to other customers and other community members, it becomes a systems problem instead of a linear problem. Talk to us a little bit about this article that I read of yours, where you talked about this Y-shape recovery and you described Siemens Dannon and Eileen Fisher as examples. And when I first read it, I thought you were going to talk about the Y-shaped recovery as pointing to the disparity between haves and have-nots, whether that's within a country or between countries. But you flip the Y actually in the right direction. So I found that really fascinating. Would you mind explaining what you mean by that?
1: Sure, Kayan. So the Y-shaped visualized letter Y, right? So it's in contrast with what everybody was hoping for, which is a V-shaped recovery, where essentially the economy nosedived, we hit rock bottom. And when you hit rock bottom, the hope is that you bounce back. So everybody's excited about the fact that the economy is roaring back. So that's the V-shaped recovery. And we are living through that right now. But what I'm interested to point out is that in 2020, when we hit rock bottom, some companies kept digging. (laughs) So let me unpack. So that means that rather than saying like, oh, my God, we hit rock bottom. So therefore, again, the strategy should be how do we get back on your feet? Like in a boxing ring, right? You are, you know, knocked down. And now you're thinking, how can I get back on my feet? That would be what strategies do. But the strategy in this company said, okay, now that we are down, let's keep digging to really do some soul searching to figure out what our core values, who we are. So that's what I mean by Y-shaped, which is like when you come to the bottom, you don't think about bouncing back immediately, right? You use this opportunity when all competitors are down. See, that's like the best time, right? Because why are you worried about bouncing back? Because everybody's on the floor. So use this time to introspect, reflect. And some companies like Decathlon, Danone, and Siemens use this time to really redefine who they are. Can you give us an example? Yeah, of course. Decathlon is a global sports retailer. They have nearly 100,000 employees in 1,000 cities in 54 countries. And last year, in the midst of the crisis, they decided to crowdsource their strategy. So every few years, and this is a great example for your audience to hear because they do everything right. So let me unpack. First of all, they think strategy has to be crowdsourced. It's not something that an elite group in a company can craft a strategy. It's everybody's Business. And second thing they believe in is that strategy has to be refreshed and it's not the Ten Commandments, right? So it has to be revisited continuously. So every three to four years, they invite all the employees to contribute to the reformulation
0: of what they call a vision. Fascinating because strategy is usually done in the boardroom, from the top, on the way down, maybe with some input from the front line. So it's like I call
1: them the Brahmins. I come from India, I have a caste system. So the strategy is like the Brahmins, and employees are like, you know, the kind of untouchables kind of thing. Sorry, I mean that's that's how it was. But so these guys, and that's amazing, right? 100,000 people, you think it's hard to do. But again, this is where technology can help. So open source crowdsourcing platforms like BlueNov, which they use, allow you to massively gather this input. By the way, it's not just like an idea brainstorming thing, right? This is where you can create a vision, dreams. They call them dreams. What are your dreams? So they basically have done that many times for the past 10 years. But what happened differently this time in 2020 is that they said, wait a second, the vision can no longer be about where our company and our customers will be in 10 years. It's about where the whole ecosystem, where society wants to be. So that ended up being called the Vision 2030 The idea was to figure out what kind of better world they could help shape using their own employees, but also the partners, the customers. So that was the initial idea. And then it got more exciting. And I think this is the kicker. When they were about to release this Vision 2030, they realized that the world is changing so fast. The idea of 2030 makes no sense as far out. Things like climate change, inequalities have to be addressed very you know, early on. So they re Vision 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the year that we are recording this now. Exactly right. To put some urgency, right? To show, to their employees that we can't wait until you know 2030 to turn this vision into reality. You guys get going, hit the ground running right now in 2021 to concretize, manifest this reality, new reality. And then they even renamed it and now they call it it's a living vision. It's a vision that continuously evolves.
0: Yeah, it makes me think a little bit of the concept that one of our guests here, John Hegel, introduced zoom out, zoom in. So zooming out 10 years from now, but now zooming into six months from now. So no longer like three years, five years, but 10 years, six months.
1: Yeah, in a way it is, right? I mean, it's like a zooming out and zooming in, except that I would even argue that the zooming out becomes less and less relevant or even possible, right? Because who would have imagined 10 years ago that we would be going to COVID. So that's where I think strategy is evolving into what the military folks used to call a couple of years ago, right? Adaptive planning. And I've written a lot when I was at Forrester Research, which is the whole notion of adaptive planning, where we go from the classic and supply chain, right? It's called, you know, strategy and execution, right? Supply chain strategy and supply chain execution. Now it's called adaptive planning. It's a hybrid form of zooming out and zooming in where you combine both, where you become more sensitive to not only the needs of the people. And I think that's another thing that strategists have to learn to do is in the case of Descartes right? They don't look at the needs that point to value, but they look at aspirations and dreams that are tied to the values of the stakeholders as well.
0: Do you think that the, I don't know what they are, if they're technologies or paradigms or something that allow a company to crowdsource strategy, organize employees, the untouchable cast that used to be the untouchable cast in that way, do you think that those are the same factors that are creating the need for this multi-stakeholder approach because customers can organize themselves, because regulators kind of organize with customers? Is that the same set of trends Yeah, I think, first of all, when you say technology, I want to be also a bit controversial. We always think like, oh my God, this is happening
1: right now because, you know, Elon Musk just said, you're entering a golden age of tech innovation. Excuse me, but there's a company called IBM. I don't know if you remember that in 2002, so we are talking about 20 years ago, used the technologies available back then. If you remember, with Sam Palmisano, was the CEO back then, they were the pioneers of crowdsourcing strategy. They went one step further. They crowdsourced their values. Remember, this called Values Jam, where they They famously invited the 100 plus thousand employees worldwide to redefine the core values of IBM because since Watson created IBM for 100 years, the notion of innovation, for example, as a value, innovation is a core value at IBM, and it was defined as innovation that matters to customers. So in 2002, when they redefined the set of values with the input of all the employees, they really find innovation as ideas that matter to society. So this was 20 years ago, right? They already did that. So my point is, yes. So I think the the technology was always there. So what I'm getting at is that it's just that the right leadership, right? Sam Palmisano was one of the first visionary leaders who believed in empowerment, this idea of bottom-up way of co-creating strategy as opposed to imposing the top-down way. So I think technology is not the new factor here. I think it's the fact that we are seeing probably more enlightened leaders like women probably stepping into the CEO role now. And the fact that you're right, we also see young people becoming the next-gen consumers, first of all, but also employees. So if you want to attract, retain talent, I mean, the young people are like, you know, I don't want you to tell me what to do, right? I want to be part. So we are entering a workplace environment where everybody wants to contribute, and Siemens calls this a culture of ownership. So in other words, you want to be part of the team that crafted the strategy so that you own that strategy. And if I go back to Decathlon, this is important because they have a very decentralized culture. So that means that the managers in the thousand cities in the 54 countries need to feel that this strategy they're trying to implement is something that they developed. So they have more skin in the game, right? It becomes their strategy now, even though it will be adapted to the local context. So if you want to really get your managers to embrace the strategy, make it their own, you have to start at the beginning where when you formulate a strategy, when you create a strategy, you need to involve everybody.
0: Never had a client adopt an idea that I gave them. It would always be their idea, right? It's their baby. So I know we're reaching towards the end of our time with you, and I've got a ton of other questions. I do want to take that idea of common purpose, creating the community and ownership, and talk about this idea of a regenerative economy because you talk about going to carbon zero, net zero is. That shouldn't be the goal. We should go beyond that. That was mind shifting for me. So could you talk to us about that?
1: Sure. It's very simple, right? Today, there's a term called sustainability, right? So sustainability essentially means that companies are saying by 2025, we will reduce our carbon footprint by 25% or 50%, which is quite noble. But it simply means that you're saying that you're going to do less harm to the society, sorry, the planet. Forget about society. We'll come back to that. But then there are other companies like Interface, which is a global carpet manufacturer. They aspire to become a regenerative business. So what it means is that by 2030, they want to become carbon negative. Essentially, what it means is that all the products beginning this year will not only pollute less, but they might even be able to capture carbon from the atmosphere and make products out of that. So, there is a whole new movement starting now. It's called love carbon. See, carbon has a very negative reputation, right? Bad reputation, right? Negative connotation. But the idea of what we are finding is that it's called the rainbow framework. So, basically, you can put the carbon into a rainbow of colors and realize that there is the kind of ugly carbon, there's a bad carbon, and there's a good carbon. So, plants also absorb carbon. So, that means that they have carbon in them. So, you can then it's called bioeconomy, where you can use plants that captured carbon to make new products. So therefore, you can say that, you know, your products are carbon negative because you absorb some carbon. So this is kind of what regeneration is about, is essentially going from the old notion of sustainability, which was all about doing less harm, to doing more consciously have a more positive impact on the environment, but also the society. So for instance, Marks and Spencer, a British retailer, their strategy is to, they have three pillars. One of them is to revitalize communities. So they are going to adopt, so to speak, thousand cities in Europe that are going to invest their resources and partners' resources to help, for example, elderly people live more independently, help create local jobs. So suddenly, right, so they're not anymore thinking about how can I add more value to customers, but how can I regenerate local communities? So regeneration is focused on three things. I call them the three Ps. We had the four Ps. So the new three Ps will be people, places, and
0: the planet. This is the triple P that these companies focus on regenerating. Beautiful. I have so many questions that I want to ask. I want to be respectful of your time. I can't leave a conversation with you without talking about frugal innovation. It's a concept you have introduced and promoted. I find it fascinating. Could you just, for the uninitiated, could you just describe what that is and kind of what the implications of a frugal economy are?
1: Frugal innovation, starts with the assumption that resources are limited, so you have to do more with less. That means that in emerging markets, where the concept emanates from, what we saw in India, Africa, China, and South America is that you have these brilliant entrepreneurs. And we are seeing, by the way, we are seeing it right now in India, right? The magic of innovation, where we see entrepreneurs using local resources to come up with good enough ventilators or oxygen concentrators, right? To save the lives of millions of COVID patients who are struggling. So innovation is essentially, it's a disruptive strategy that aims to create more economic and social value using fewer resources. So it's about doing more and better with less. And we see now Western companies embracing frugal innovation, like, for example, the French car company Renault for the past 20 years have launched a series of affordable cars ranging from $5,000 in 2004. And excitingly, they repurposed some of the existing car vehicle architectures to launch this month. In France, an electric car that costs $14,000, which is the cheapest EV, you know, in Europe and probably in the world. So that shows how Frug Innovation can help create. I call it Frug Innovation as a strategy to co-create value from values. Because as we say, right, if I connect it back to everything we discussed so far, yes, strategy is about creating value for society and blah, blah, blah environment. But there's a cost associated with doing it. And this is where frugal innovation beautifully is compatible and complementary to the strategies we talked about so far, because creating strategy and implementing a strategy cost money. So if you can frugally implement a strategy that
0: contributes to society and the planet, it's even better. All right. So unfortunately, we've reached the top of our time together. So I'm going to ask you two questions to close. The first is we just kind of opened the door and peeked into some areas that we really should go down and strategies should go down. We talked about frugal innovation. We talked about regenerative economy. We talked about the Y-shape recovery. We talked about the shift towards a multi-stakeholder strategic approach. So my first question will be, what should strategists do now? What would you leave us with? And then my second question will be, how can people who want to engage with you, who want to read your books, connect with you, learn from you, how can they do that?
1: The first thing I would say, the only thing I would say to strategy officers, CSOs, is that this is going to be the golden age of strategy, but it won't be your grandfather's strategy anymore, right? So it's going to be very different. And particularly, I would say the CSOs have become, in a way, CIOs. That means the chief inspiration officers. So your goal anymore is neither to create or implement strategy, is to inspire and inspire people to believe in a better future. And then like Decathlon, leverage the input, creative input of these stakeholders to co-create the strategy with them and then figure out a way to have the right leadership style where you empower the frontline people to go implement the strategy. So that all that will not happen unless you figure out how to inspire people. So your task is basically to figure out, you know, how can I fire up people? How can I help people to dream big and bold? Because right now, my concern is as we come out from COVID, imagination, right, is stifled. People cannot project themselves in the future because after a big crisis like neuroscience shows that after a big crisis like this, which is highly traumatic, your amygdala Which is part of the limbic system, the primary part of the brain, gets bigger. And amygdala is all about fight or flight. So when you're in fight or flight mode, imagining a better future is impossible. You cannot even think. This is
0: what they call the lizard brain. This is the reptilian brain. That's right.
1: So this is why your job is basically to unlock the crown chakra of your staff so that essentially they start dreaming big, they start getting fired up and aspire to a better future for themselves, but also for the society at large. And then if you want to learn more about me, you can go to my website, which is at naviraju.com, where you can find more information on my books and discover more about my articles and the talks I've given.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for being here and thank you for all of us listening for the really important work you do and for the doors you open up for us as we shape our organizations and society. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kayan. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Nest, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.